I shine some of my books and two black guys came and gave me their books to sign. And uh, I signed them and then I couldn't resist backstage jokes. I told them I don't know which books belong to whom because you know you blacks are all the same, we can You know what was the result? I noticed because we chatted a little bit. They started to call me brother. <laughs> you see how at certain level I think it worked, but now I'm coming to the crucial point, which is a very nice one. Uh, afterwards, I used this bad taste number, the first one, that is to say you can call me nigger, with another black public and someone was a little bit hurt and told me, but do you know that nonetheless it's a sensitive point, like you cannot actually start calling black people niggers, it has too many racist associations. You know why I was hurt? And then with the guy we immediately become friends. Because I told him that this offer, you can call me nigger. I'm not an idiot. I mean, it was strictly meant, it's a very beautiful example of manners. It was meant, as I always mention, as an offer to be rejected. It wasn't meant as, oh, now I have to start. No, it was just a singular gesture of friendship. But it was not an actual offer. That's what I find uh, very important. And you see, these are good manners for me. Where, in such a way which may sound absurd, you get, uh, you get the message of friendship across and so on and so on. This same guy made Another criticism of me, very Hegelian one. You know my line against this particular identity, universality, blah, blah. And he told me, but nonetheless, isn't it that we blacks should insist on black power? It's not only all of us who should renounce our particular identity and so on. And then we talked and came at a wonderful result, which is very Hegelian. It is a wonderful example of what Hegel calls uh, determinate negation. You know, to put it in more abstract terms, every universality, as Hegel teaches us, is founded in a negated particularity. You overstep a certain particularity. The problem, of course, <coughs> is that uh, it matters which particularity is transcendent. Uh, it, what I'm telling you now is warning. Now I will give you like a, a trigger warning. But not a joke. Uh, I know the joke that I must have used here at least five times. Ninochka, uh, give me coffee with uh, with cream. Sorry, we don't have cream. We only have milk. I can only give you coffee without milk. You know. So you see, although materially it's the same, it matters if it's. Coffee, although it's the same shitty black coffee, but coffee without cream is not the same as coffee without milk, of course, in the symbolic universe and so on. So my point is this one, that universalism should always be qualified on what base, and this is for me politically important. If we black, black sorry, if we white people reach to the other universalism. Of course, even if we sincerely renounce our 
particular identity. It's nonetheless universalism as negated Western culture, culture. But this negation still echoes in it. So it should be what? The most beautiful example, which I also used properly already here, is for me, I'm sure you know it, the case of Haiti Constitution, 1804, where Haiti, the new black republic, they, they wanted to be a black republic in the sense of uh, independence and so on from their, not even colonizers, but slave owners. But at the same time, they were honest to admit that their military victory over Napoleon's army was achieved by the help of some good, honest white soldiers, especially that goes to their eternal honor, Polish soldier, because you know the story. Napoleon was screwing that Polish lady, Maria Valesco, or whatever. Okay. A rich Polish noble woman became Napoleon's lover, and out of respect for her, Napoleon gave some kind of autonomy to Poland when he occupied Europe, and because of this, uh, uh, that's always the price you pay with Napoleon, because of this they had to send an army. No? And okay, quite a lot of white Napoleon's army soldiers sent to crash the Black Rebellion were of Polish origin. And you know the story I repeated, it's one of the most sublime moments in the history. They approached the Black Army, they heard some singing, and they thought, oh, this must be some primitive tribal dances, you know. They came close, you know what the blacks were singing? Marseillaise. And, uh, uh, and the Polish soldiers simply asked themselves the question, fuck it, I mean, in my plastic interpretation, <laughs> fuck it, are we on the right side here? And they changed sides. And not crucially, but all, with some extent, with their help, the blacks want. So they were grateful to them. So how to unite this fact that honest white people should be allowed to stay there with the fact that Haiti should be a black country? You know the joke. Article 4 of the Haiti Constitution of 1804. Haiti is a black republic. So all its citizens, independently of the color of their skin, I absolutely admire this solution. Because you see the point. Without this, don't worry, uh, because some 20 years in Brazil also, I was accused of being in the last stage of cocaine. No. <laughs> I never, I feel so ashamed. If I'm accused of it, I should at least have tried something. But, you know, I'm the only guy of my generation that I know that hasn't tried, no, no, not even marijuana, nothing. You know, nothing. I'm totally innocent. And, and I tell you another thing about uh, uh, ideology. You know what happened? In my country, when I was young, old communist Yugoslavia, drugs were tolerated, tolerated at least soft drugs more than now. Why? Ah, communists were not totally idiots, those who were in power. It's the same as in... Uh, I was also told in Brazil that whenever in favelas, maybe now it's a little bit clear, but years before, I wonder if you would tell me the truth. So yesterday we had a special representative who clicks here and then from Greece, now we have a special... <laughs> One on TV <laughs> I was told that, at least in the tougher times of military dictatorship, whenever 
you know, favelas are usually what? Mobs, uh, wild capitalism, and so on. Whenever there was a danger of some more politically radicalized organization in favelas, all of a sudden, police have shown much greater tolerance for drugs, like, you know, let them drug themselves better than politicization. <laughs> my friends from Poland told me, it was the same in 90, when was it? 80, 81. Jaruzelski's coup d'etat to crash Solidarność. They told me, you know, what all of a sudden was totally tolerated. All student campuses were overflown by drugs, plus pornography, plus New Age mysticism. Even the party newspapers started to bring guys who, how to discover your inner true self, blah, blah, and with all these messages, you know, reality doesn't matter, all the truth in this is deep in you. Of course, if all the truth, truth in deep in you, then you will not bother them to control power and so on. So, uh, uh, back to this point, uh, so you see, this is the true state of political power not only against particular identity for universalism, but like, what's the color of universalism? Or to take the other Hegel's lesson, you know, what Hegel calls concrete universality, means precisely that there is no neutral universality, that each universality is my God, they feel so vulgar. No, don't be afraid, I will not answer, but I put the phone on silence and uh, just another classic joke, I cannot resist it. And now it's like vibrating and I feel as if I can <laughs> better I don't stand it on. <laughs> okay, I'm not colored by a specific particular species of itself, which, as Marx put it very nicely in his uh, introduction to Grundrisse, which in a way colors or gives the tone of the entire universality. You know this, the point of Marx, that for example, although we have different kinds of production, agriculture production, artisanal production, big industry, in Feudal times, agriculture is the production as such. It colors everything. In capitalism, it's industrial production. So the nice example given by Marx, even if all other fields of production then tend to be industrialized, like agriculture is more industrialized, but this is precisely because they are all productions, but one production, industrial in this case, stands for production as such. And uh, even with art, you know, this is what Hegel means again by concrete universality. It's a very materialist idea. It's not, as you read in bad books on Hegel, it's not that stupidity of how, you know, somehow mysteriously the abstract idea screws itself and turns around itself and engenders all particular content. No, it's almost the exact opposite is that Universality cannot ever be a truly neutral universality. Every neutral universality is color. And precisely, again, that's where, as we all know, that's where racism enters. I mean, white people 
traditional liberals can be very open and so on, and often they do have a message in their preaching universal rights. But again, if you look at it closely, these universal rights already have a certain color. Although, as a good Marxist Hegelian, I must tell you what often historicists who insist on this point, this is that the opposite is also true. You know, it's the Lacanian real, which is, I'm sorry if you know this lesson, but it's very important, against any theological mystification of Lacan, that uh, universality is not just impossible, impossible in the sense that it's never a pure universality. It's every universality is always colored by some part of its content. Uh, it's also the opposite, that uh, uh, universality is something which is at the same time impossible, but at the same time necessary. You cannot escape. And this is the lesson that some historicists who claim, you know, who universality is always fragile, we always have to historicize, produce a particular content, the problem is that every particular content is also fragile, inconsistent, and so on. And this is specifically the problem with capitalism today. Uh, you know, uh, I'm sorry if I repeat myself, but it's a crucial Hegelian point. You know that universality, Marx distinguishes in a very Hegelian way between universality in itself, just blind universality, and universality for itself universality which is posited as such. What does this mean? Marx gives this example. For example, uh, in every society we have work. So work is universal. We all work, okay, in one own way, so we can say work is a general feature and then we have particular modalities of work. But what happens with bourgeois society is something much more radical. It's not just that we all work each in our particular sphere. It's also not just what I just said, that one type of work, industrial work, serves as a secret model for all of it. It's something much more. It's that only in modern capitalist society, we, in our immediate, actual self-experience, experience ourselves as universal. In what sense? In the simple sense that we are not fully identified by the particular field of what we work. You know, we can change our profession, which is, as you probably know, I repeat this all the time, meaningless in medieval times. We have professions. Profession is something that you contingently choose. In medieval times, they didn't have professions. You cannot ask a knight, what is your profession? And he will say, my profession is to be a knight or whatever. <laughs> no, he was much more immediately identified. That is to say, and one can say that in so-called consumerism, the same goes even for, uh, even for uh, 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 pleasure. Pleasure is, in this sense, denaturalized. Or, you know, you don't have a particular object of pleasure which is privileged by nature. Desire is universal. But what's the point? The point, okay, this always was. The point is that you immediately discover it, sorry, experience it as 
universal. And this is the beauty of Lacan. We don't have time to go into this. Uh, uh, because there is a particular object which, as it were, gives body to this universality. But this object is what Lacan calls object correct, object Because it's precisely the void in body and so on and so on. Or, okay, we can go in here, but we don't have time even into purely philosophical Kantian topic. Because as you maybe this would be one of the ways to condense to incidentally, I talk too much, so uh, of course there is never, you may have noticed it any time for debate at the end. So I want to be fair and give you a chance. The only chance is you simply interrupt me and you can at any moment you want to ask me some question. No, no chance, no other chance. <laughs> as long as I live, I'd rather die than to say at the end, oh, now we have 10 minutes, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> this will never happen. I've already told you probably this show, as when an idiot asks me, why am I uh, not an, a psychoanalyst, no, practicing? I told him, can you really imagine me sitting quietly and listening to another person, you know? I told him, the only way for me to be an analyst is you sit there, I look at you a little bit, then I tell you everything. <laughs> what are your symptoms? And I interpret them, and all you're allowed to do is to say, yes, professor. <laughs> Precisely, there is no pure desire. 
desire is always contingent particular. For Lacan, there is a pure desire. Okay, so uh, let's go on. Ah, yes, uh, okay, I did. Mostly, let me go a little bit on, which may interest you. Again, I like to attack people when they are absent, no? So let me make another remark on Costas. You know? <laughs> uh, 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 my God, I will tell you something which is pure friendship. <laughs> you met Costas. Yes, you know he has this time, you know? You know what was, I was so, I'm really, this is for me the sign that he really maybe likes me a little bit. Because I, otherwise he would have killed me probably. Once we were talking about this disgusting charity publicity, you know, you have, you have the photo of a disfigured uh, uh, a black guy with some lips twisted and then that you be, with five dollars you can make this guy happy, you know changed his life, a cheap operation, no? It's so nasty. Some, did some of you guess it? What was my I imagined in a Greek newspaper his image and, and like, uh, for five dollars you can make cutting this off, this guy happy, shell grease and so on. And I'm infinitely grateful to him that he didn't kill me. I mean, even I, it happens even to very bad persons like me, even I was a little bit shocked, you know. <laughs> but now, a little bit more serious. I think that Costa, like an old leftist, this is also, if you read that book, but you shouldn't, because I just recycled used old stuff, that uh, uh, exchange of letters between me and the Pussy Riot girl, no? no? Now, okay, I cannot receive vulgarity. People ask me, oh, but she's beautiful. What was the price? Did you fuck her or what? I'm sorry to tell you, I haven't even met her. She wanted to, I didn't want to, because I don't like, you know, once you get to know well-known people, then you are expected to visit them every time <laughs> your life is nice. Okay, but with her, there is nonetheless one serious theoretical point which is extremely important, especially today, I claim, in that book. Uh, this is, I was nicely surprised by her because this is the real tension. There is, uh, it's not just paying respect to each other, a real politics. For me, she is too much caught into this simple opposition of regular life, things running uh, like ordinary, and then those magic moments of holy madness, carnival, and so on, when ecstatic moments, and so on. And for her then, Putin is this oppressive normality, and they, Pussy Riot, stand for this joyful transgression, obscenity, and so on. I exploded that then. I think that if you accept this opposition, then, then you basically denigrate yourself if you want to be a true radical leftist. You accept this cheap, let's call it transgressive logic that, you, you know, because the point is that, okay, you have your transgression, but the big problem is precisely how this transgressive liberation this is for me the only true test. 
how it will be later translated into a new normal state of things. As already repeated here, fuck that moment of liberation. I don't care about that. I care only more and more about this. Okay, you have your fucking big, transgressive, enthusiastic moments, one million people on Syntagma Square, blah, blah. What will happen two months later when things will, let's say, return to normal? How will the people feel the difference at the everyday level? That's the truly difficult show. So I don't care if you want to be just that transgressive moment. Oh, we are now free, and what, uh, a month later, what? Putin comes back. No, I don't care, you are doubly wrong. First, Putin is not a real normality. Russia deserves much better. Putin is a kind of a obscene transgressive normality. I don't care, don't accept this logic. Putin pretends to be a serious master. We are refreshing clowns and so on. No, your thesis should be, we want normality, Putin is a clown. You know, you should turn this around. The same, the same thing uh, uh, with, uh, when Costa said that, that, you know, Varoufakis is playing a clown. No, European experts are really clowns playing the experts. They are not even good economists and so on and so on, I mean. But uh, more important, so where was my, my misunderstanding with uh, uh, Kostas here? Uh, I think he did it, if you were at that meeting half a year ago, or even less now, with, in support of Greece, here at Birkbeck, where my first misunderstanding, very frankly, with him was that I considered that meeting totally useless. You know in what sense? We were just preaching to the convinced. We felt, well, oh my God. My God, you should do what I'm now trying to do. Okay, Guardian, I'm out. They did publish that long text on my online. I don't know if they print it on, at least online. It, was, it did appear yesterday in New Statesman. It uh, will appear, it looks now, even in Newsweek, at least the digital version. You must somehow touch the public, not just this self-satisfaction of preaching to the police. So, Costas, at that point, here, gave an example which I think at least ambiguous, maybe even totally wrong. He told a story which I knew he told it to me, he likes to tell it, he is getting senile like me. Every month he forgets that he already told you, but I'm doing the same, so. About how, you remember when there was that military coup d'etat, and afterwards, the military not even overthrown. After the fiasco of the Cyprus adventure, they had to step down. And he told me that when the Cyprus adventure began, he was in military barracks where some colonel came from Athens and all the soldiers were gathered and then he gave them a patriotic speech. Countryside now, you know the usual bullshit the right figures are giving to you when things look bad for them, you know. Now we should forget our divisions, our countries in danger and so on. And I will not use the other F word. Here I'm too embarrassed. But uh, at the high point of his speech, when he was on the point of shouting, uh, whatever, he gave a sound of flatulence. <laughs> and then everybody started to laugh and then it was simply over. Like, you know, 
some just simply didn't take him over in that barracks, so he left and simply soldiers went home. So, okay. Uh, okay, I told him already it's very difficult to give this as an example of liberation because from my own modest, I never claimed that I was a big dissident, but modest dissident experience, I encountered not exactly the same, with the same sounds, but very structurally the same, similar examples which were staged by those in power. For example, I remember some meeting in Ljubljana where people who were really distressed gave a speech on freedom, dignity, blah, blah, and people who later we discovered were provocateurs paid by the state with like, towns like that all around, and they, they succeeded in destroying all of it, you know, just the, uh, and uh, who are you, haha, ha, idiot, and so on, and you know what I mean, like, uh, uh, intelligent power structures today, they are very apt in using obscenities for their own, so I absolutely don't have any admiration for obscenity. I think that especially today, when we have more and more technocrats ruling us, and uh, when I use the term technocrat, let me be very clear here. I even almost believe in technocracy. My, my reproach to them, like the Brussels bureaucrats, is not that they are technocrats, but that they are stupid, idiotic masters who pretend to be eurocrats. That what they don't see is that they are not really technocrats. Their technocratic proposals apparently totally neutral, managerial is just a question of numbers, of balance, and so on, are really sustained by a whole series of strictly political, non-technocratic decisions, and so on. So, what I want to say is that the fear today for those in power in a typical Western society, the fear of these technocratic masters is serious engagement as such. You know, they like to talk the language not of big words, which is why, uh, I forgot her name, an American Chinese, I'm so sorry, now it's maybe my spontaneous racism that I sincerely uh, excuse myself, maybe the name will come, uh, Chinese cultural studies woman, very intelligent one, wrote a wonderful text criticizing Brecht claiming that the Brecht strategy of mocking authorities and so on, extraneation, that today basically it no longer works, is the language of power. That this standard cynical attitude, mocking big words, blah blah, is precisely the attitude used by those in power against any who want a, a real radical change. So that's the sad thing today. The discourse of those in power works at two levels. On the one hand is this falsely, apparently neutral speech, oh, it's just numbers like Verfakis talks about Europe, in, in Brussels they tell him, listen, but we are just talking about one percentage there, there, you know, like apparently neutral technical data, 
whenever you want to go beyond, you are immediately mocked at, dismissed as a pathetic clown, still believing in big words, and so on, and so on, and so on. So I think, if I may now act what I really am in my heart, it may surprise you, as a very traditional deep moralist, I claim that today's power is more and more legitimized by a kind of a sarcastic, cynical immorality. It's, so which is why, again, I no longer believe in all those uh, gestures, you know, of mocking those in power. Again, look at it who used this, who uses this recently. It's more and more, again, uh, those in, it's more and more those in power. Okay, now, uh, let me, uh, uh, nonetheless, let us now go, uh, ah, perfect, we have a lot of time, now this was a short introduction, now I will do exactly the two things I promised you for today, tomorrow we go into difficult theory of sexual difference and so on, uh, about uh, democracy, socialism, communism, apropos <coughs> China, and then second part, as I promised you, about Heidegger. First, democracy. Now we come to the more boring part, I mean, read it and so on. Uh, when Badiou claims that democracy is our fetish, I think that we should take this not as a kind of a vague metaphor, you know, fetish in the sense of what we absolutely value and so on, what we elevate into an absolute, but we should take this statement literally, in the precise Frondian sense. Democracy is, you know this, this rather naive level, what is for Freud a fetish? The origin of fetish is the last thing that you see before you see that. This is the naive Freudian narrative. The last object you see before you see that the woman doesn't have it, the penis. This is why it's usually fur or feet or whatever. And I claim in this precise sense, uh, democracy is our fetish. It's the last thing we see before confronting the lack or antagonism constitutive of social field. The trauma of social antagonism. It is as if when we are confronted with the reality of domination and exploitation, of brutal social struggles, we can always add, yes, we have struggles, we are in deep shit, but we have democracy. You know, it's exactly the form of je sais bien, mais comme I know we are ruled by rich people, blah, 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 and we are powerless, but we have democracy. Uh, uh, and, uh, okay, let me use again an old example, which I think works perfectly. These are for me modern fetishist films, which are not surprisingly representative of so-called, ironically so-called, Hollywood Marxism. Those apparently subversive American movies, critical, which are, I think, deeply conservative, deeply, not conservative, but uh, uh, conformist. I'm talking about blockbusters like All the President's Men or Pelican Brief. They all are variations on the same story. The official image of a society that you get there is a deeply pessimist one. Like in both these films, 
the corruption is tracked up to the top of society itself. The president of the United States is corrupted, controlled by uh, uh, corporations, whatever. Uh, but what is the fascist? The fetish is the basic message of the film, which is why we maybe like those films. Why do we feel good, even if the social picture that we get in such a film is terrible? It's nonetheless then, at the end, the lesson is, but nonetheless, don't we live in a wonderful country where two ordinary guys, journalists, can bring down the mightiest men in the world, and so on and so on. I think this is fetish, this, precisely this, this awareness which uh, makes you feel well. And uh, so, uh, going up now to politics, I think that such people often ask me, oh, I know we get your point, socialism, uh, uh, communism, uh, communism uh, uh, capitalism doesn't work, you will have to invent something, but always I get this answer. Even Fukuyama, when I met him, went half this way. Like, yeah, I get your point, uh, all the antagonisms, practically unsolvable, but why then do you need this deus ex machina? Why do you bring communism? Isn't it even more discredited? The answer I can give is the following one. If there is a term, that I more and more am tempted to reject is socialism. Why? Because in practice, socialism is more and more becoming, I claim, a, a word which, you know, but you said nicely, that a true idea divides. When you are in a confused situation, an idea is a concept which enables you to draw the separation. This is why although now he is more sympathetic towards democracy, a little bit. This was Badiou's problem with democracy. Not that he is against the power of the people and so on, but that today, in practical use, it's not a term which enables you to draw a line of separation. No, everyone practically is for democracy. It's meaningless. Socialism, I claim, it's the same, almost. Okay, you have right-wing madmen who are not, but isn't it that, like, that the term, and many post-communist parties call themselves like that, democratic, so parties of democratic socialism, in Germany, in Slovenia, I understand strategic reasons to do it, but theoretically, I think it's the worst possible choice. Democracy is just the feeling of guilt. Why do they add democracy? Because they are afraid to be identified as old Stalinist and so on. But the message is horrible. The message between the lines is don't be too much afraid of us, you know, we don't really mean it, radical change, we will respect the game and so on, rules of the game. Socialism. Socialism is a benign artifact, it's a kind of a compromising formula for communism. Socialism means basically what? Everybody can be a socialist. My God, in one interview, Bill Gates claims that in a way he is a socialist. It simply means basically, no, I admit it, everything should not be left just to the market. We are not just cruel individuals. We also 
we also need to care for our future children, society, and so on. I hate when people uh, take uh, think. I totally reject this uh, ecological line. You know, we borrowed uh, the earth from future from our children. The, the fact that we borrowed the earth from, from our children, I have two of them. I can tell you, this is the strongest argument I can imagine to ruin this earth. <laughs> okay, here it is. Uh, uh, you know, socialism, no wonder everybody can be a socialist. It just means some communal sense. Hitler was a socialist, Bill Gates is a socialist. It just means, no, it's not just individualism, cruel market. It doesn't draw the proper line of difference. And as I already maybe mentioned to you, uh, 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 my great art source is here Otto Weininger, the crazy guy, section character, who put it bluntly. He meant it negatively, I take it positively. He says, said, wrote in his section character, socialism is Aryan, communism is Jewish. Ah, perfect. I'm for no? Okay, now let me go because to China. You can ask a question. Yes, of course. Uh, would you distinguish between the old uh, socialism 60s? What do you mean by old socialism? The socialist states. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. in Europe. Where yeah. There were actually a uh, uh, division. There were a division. Of course. No, no, sorry, sorry, sorry. I didn't mean that in socialist countries there are no antagonism. Of course there were. What I, and I will precisely make this point nicely about China today. There is a ferocious class struggle, as far as, let's say, going on in China. But this Confucian socialism that they are preaching, the true target is not bourgeois Western liberals. It's precisely to control the class struggle in China. China is, you know, because this is the basic rule. Uh, China always emphasizes today the need for stability, order, and so on. Well, I'm asking myself, why do they emphasize this so much? Because they must be scared totally, and they are. I mean, just look at the data, you should read media in details. For example, everybody is talking about how much did China lately raise the uh, defense budget. I don't know if it's true. Are you the Chinese girl? Sorry, you. No. Because there was somebody, because now we had a reporter from Brazil <laughs> another one from Because I heard that they, they tripled even more the budget for inner security. They now did something which is pretty horrible. They, till now, they wanted to postpone it. They organized a uh, how to call them, this, not just local police, but anti-riot security forces, which are mobile, can intervene here, because they have so many, according to, I think I already tell you this story once, according to official sources, already three years ago, they told me this, some official representatives, that they have around 2,000 per year serious disturbances. I love this bureaucratic talk. They ask them, fuck you, what does it mean, serious disturbance? And they give me a wonderful, clear, formal definition. Serious disturbance is a local unrest, strike demonstrations, which is so strong that local police cannot deal with this, that army can deal with it. 
2,000 per year. Imagine, what is this? Three, some, five, six per, per day. So now, to avoid this embarrassment of army fighting the people, they constitute the disturbance. And there are, uh, oh, sorry, but I become immediately, so you see my point, of course there are differences, uh, uh, antagonisms. But what I'm saying is that socialism as a term works precisely in order to somehow cover up, control these antagonisms. Which is why fascists never have a problem to use the term socialism. Yes, there is behind you a guy who... Yes, please. I, I really want to believe your statistics when you quote journalistic sources as friends in China and so on and so forth. Yeah, but uh, first, be fair. Sorry, I will immediately give you that. Be fair towards me. I mean, uh, I quote them because there are no other sources. I know, but yesterday in your lecture, you made some very crass generalizations about Western mass media. For example? For example, that um, it, it, we all know it's lying, never gets to the truth, it's ideological, blah, blah. Well, you, you made it monolithic, if nothing else. No, I'm well aware with the meaning. You talk like, I talk like this, we all talk like this. Of course, it's not monolithic. <clears throat> For example, we, the way they relate to Greece. Of course, there are many nuances, different versions, and some of them are very interesting, I admit. All the honor to them. For example, FT, Financial Times. At some point, I don't know what they are doing now, I was pleasantly surprised about at the beginning of Syriza government, you know that there was a text in Financial Times which says, let's face it, Tsipras is the only guy who speaks reasonable. They don't show, not, not to mention some American conservative media, and so on and so on. So no, but, but I think, you know, that's how media in our country's world work. There is nonetheless something which is clearly the hegemonic version. For example, take even Putin. There are many, even conservative voices, which say, for example, a typical, uh, a typical isolationist conservative voice would have said, screw the Russians, who cares if they want whatever they want there, even if they grab a land or two small around them, it's not in our American interest, why don't we? You have all that, but nonetheless, isn't there a clear, predominant, hegemonic position. And now I will go even a step further, which may be more problematic for you. I would even say that this hegemonic position may even not be the majoritarian one. Somebody can determine the field while formally in a minority. That's my point in the United States. Uh, for example, politically correct, permissive, hedonist, liberal, left. I doubt if they are really a majority. I think it's more a phenomenon of big cities, uh, these half intellectual circles, blah, blah, blah. But they determine the field in the sense that all attacks are attacks on them. You know, they are reactions. Sorry. Are you familiar with the work of John Pilger? Yeah, and I have some problems. With so do I. Sorry? So do I. But yeah. he... Okay, then let's make a step further. I have even very many problems. <laughs> you know why? I tell you why. Because he pretends to be always that guy who tells the truth and so on and so on. 
Well, what he wrote about ex-Yugoslavia, it's a total racist bullshit. For example, and I was shocked to hear this from him, uh, how he characterized, uh, he, okay, maybe this is my patriotism, he writes about Slovenia, this is his standard, this is the uh, New Left Review story. We Slovenes are guilty of everything, because we were the first to leave Yugoslavia and, you know, we were the first cart to be taken out of a house of cards. And then, and then, as Robin Blackburn, I was shocked, even told me with some weird sadism that it wasn't just that we were Slovenes the first to leave it and then didn't pay any price. This is not fair. Like, all others then, thousands had to die. We did. No, what does he say? He says first that Kosovo, look, I, I think I quote it, I'm not sure, or I will in the next in some of my books. He describes Kosovo as a primitive province uh, run by local mobsters. My God, even third nationalists didn't go so far. <laughs> if, you know, to can, uh, I mean, let's be formal, what does he do? An entire small nation there, he characterizes as totally undeveloped, run by mobsters and so on. Then, when he speaks about secession of Yugoslavia, he calls Slovenia and Croatia provinces. Sorry, but now I hate to be now, if I, you know, now I repeat uh, Golda Meir, who said hypocritically that I really hate our opponents, not for what they are doing to us, but what they are forcing us to do to them, this hypocritical morality. Well, I think the same, that I hate bigger uh, form turning me almost into a Slovene nationalist. But sorry, Yugoslavia was a federacy where, according to the constitution, every republic has a full right to that, That's really interesting. But, but what he advocates, which yeah. I'm sure you know... No, I don't. All right. I stopped reading him. He, he, he takes yeah. this very Marxist, ultra-Marxist position. Which one? Which he, he regards as ultra-Marxist. Which is? Pilger takes this perspective. Yeah, yeah, but which is the, the position? Which is that all journalism is, is objective and it's nirvana of, of this telescopic distance. So he has something important to say, but in the, but in the name of resisting yeah. bourgeois forms, yeah. he, he, he creates a new um, monolithic kind of, and he always describes, he always says that journalism should, uh, mo you know, like Robert Fitz, monitor the power of the people, monitor the people, Look at the people resisting power. So, so I totally oppose this entire approach. It's well, you know Robert Fisk too. Do you sorry, Robert Fisk. Yeah, of course. But I still, if I have to choose between Fisk and how do you pronounce the other guy? Pilger, John Pilger. Pilger. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I would immediately select Pil uh, Fisk. Yes, yeah. he's more complex. Yeah, more complex. But yeah. what's interesting about Pilger, nice circularity, is that his latest documentary. He makes some good films. Yes, yeah. I agree. That yeah. is about China. So and what is his view there? I don't know, it hasn't come out yet. Yeah. But I don't, I don't know, what, he hasn't published anything recently, he's working on his film. No, you know what I know from my Chinese friends, okay, but it's supported by some data and interesting thing that they have shown to me, is that we in the West, we present the conflict in China, within China, as the conflict between the old sterile party guard who just allows a certain degree of capitalism and private freedoms to 
enable the Communist uh, Party rule to go on, and some, I don't know, pro-Western libertarians and so on and so on. I can guarantee you that this is empirically false. What the Communist Party is really afraid is not that. And I give you, uh, Van Hui, my friend, showed this to me. Uh, a wonderful proof. I'm sorry if you already know it, because I mentioned it years ago. You know, every Communist Party in power has uh, uh, the ultimate book, the book capitalized, is the history of the party, where they tell you the absolute truth, you know, like the Stalinist history of Bolshevik party and so on. Okay, in China they also have it, and it's, of course, re-edited every year, every two years. Already a couple of years ago, I was told, and okay, maybe he lied to me, but he showed me I was able to see some differences. I doubt that he lied to me, but something very mysterious happened. In the latest edition, a chapter was censored, deleted. You know which chapter? Okay, you can have many ironic points to be made. For example, you know, when communists were taking over in 48, they organized in, in, uh, in the south, Nanjing big demonstrations against Kuomintang, Chiang Kai-shek rule, and they accused Chiang Kai-shek of single-party rule, just Kuomintang. So the slogan of Mao was, we want, want multi-party democracy. Now, Van Hui told me that he knows a dissident who just put this as a quote from Mao. We want multi-party democracy, and then Mao Zedong collected works there, <laughs> and went with this on Tiananmen. Basically, he wasn't careful about it. Nobody knows that he disappeared. But back to that. Uh, you know, in 1920s, in the southern region of Shanghai, there was a kind of almost economic miracle development of industry, enough of local commercial cinema. There was a well-known actress, uh, uh, Mao's wife, who was specialized in erotic comedies. I have one. They gave it to me, to my friend. Uh, the young wife of Mao. Uh, so, uh, uh, and then this was a moment of authentic, sincere glory of Communist Party. Uh, they organized trade unions, strikes, that chapter disappeared because it was considered that it may give the wrong idea for today, you know. It's incredible how one of the really glorious, nice roles of the Communist Party organizing trade union strikes, it's censored for being too. And this is what I almost like about China. They still have this totally naive Stalinist hermeneutics where data don't matter. What matters is the meaning. And uh, since in the old Chinese style, uh, that guy, how is it called? Francois Julien, you should treat him. I mean, he is naive, but very good at how Chinese language functions. And it's incredible to see how with all his modernity and gay tradition, the Chinese political life is still organized in that way where it's not that you say it directly. What matters is whom you mentioned, whom you didn't mention. For example, Francois Julien quotes an, a historical work which is apparently just celebrating a great ancient emperor. And uh, 
all appears just as a big celebration. But he claims, if you know how to read it, it's a devastating criticism. For example, it says, uh, uh, in the morning before the battle, the general <coughs> with his lieutenant visited the front. You mean, what's wrong? Ah, if you know the background, that the general is supposed, the leader, the commander, to visit the front the previous evening, and not with his lieutenants, but alone, so that he can catch people by surprise, then you see that this is a devastating criticism. And that you have to know to read in this way uh, statements. Uh, and, uh, so, uh, 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 again, uh, 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 if you read it uh, in this way in China, today you discover, practically, you discover wonders of intense battles and so on and so on. You should always go into this differential structural principle, not like the coffee without milk, coffee without, you know, not what is said, but what is unsaid, what is not said, and so on and so on, you know. It's interesting because Gerard Lockman, the, the, the governor of Sao Paulo, he once said just to justify that the violence, criminality in Sao Paulo. Which violence? Violence against the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, the I mean, bad violence. Yeah, I mean, the, the thieves and... Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the Comando Vermelho, the city, yeah. the comment, uh, the red comment. Yeah. Well, he said that, you know, but you shouldn't worry about the violence here, uh, the urban violence here, because, you know, uh, the violence is even worse uh, in, in most of cities in the north. Uh, and then, uh, well, in the north of Brazil? In the north of Brazil. Yeah. And then I, what he was basically saying is that, you know, uh, it doesn't matter if how many how many people are dying here. You know, you should be glad because they are dying more in the north. And I remember that once I was, uh, uh, I think that you have already watched the film, uh, A Touch of Scene. Such of scene. Is this that, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, the, the great Chinese guy? Yeah, 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 yeah. I only wrote about it, I didn't read it. Yeah. And then, uh, <laughs> and then, yeah, and then I, 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 I have some friends from, uh, from China, and uh, we, I decided to watch the film with them. And then they said exactly something like that. You know, if they happen, they happen isolated. Uh, I mean, we, we don't know that those things actually happen. And it seems that. Uh, today is like that. Yeah, I mean, they might happen, but well, when we don't know about them, and then they don't happen actually. What? Yeah, I mean, th th those crimes and. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, what interests me is that uh, this uh, how to call it this way where what matters is what you mention. How I admire the Chinese because you know what I was told in China, but everybody knows this, that if you have a rumor like this, some crime happened or not, you never know, that there is only one way to be sure that it happens, when it's officially denied. It is an absolute rule that, and you know where I see this hermeneutic reading? I was in China when the, the mayor of Shanghai was arrested for corruption. And I was shocked how all my friends, automatically, no one took this as a pure criminal matter. You know, they immediately translated it into which faction is fighting the other faction. For them, it, it literally, it didn't mean, it didn't mean anything. I mean, there is a certain great charm in this 
structure. You know, for example, uh, you know how uh, North Korea, 20 years back, <coughs> its distance towards Soviet Union. It was still Soviet Union, I think. Not with any big declarations, we are no longer on the same side, but you just have to look at the official biography of the second one, Kim Jong-il. Because he really was born in Soviet Union, where his father was close to Korea in Siberia. All of a sudden there was a new version that he was born on some sacred mountain in Korea itself, and so on. You know, it's not about the truth. It's, you use this totally to signal. My favorite example, if you read it this way, is did you see every 10 years they make in, up there in uh, Korea, sorry, in uh, China, they make a big official fiction film about Chinese independence, the final years of the war. And I got through friends, some of them are available legally on the video, the last three ones. It's incredible how, although all three films talk about past, what happened in 1949, it's the best indicator of what goes on today. For example, in the last version, which is incidentally excellent, Hollywood style, they even use all the well-known internationally Chinese actors in small cameo roles. For example, in 47, an honest bourgeois journalist comes to visit Mao to interview him. Jackie Chan is the journalist. Or, when communists take over Beijing, uh, Mao calls some representatives of the youth to debate what should be the flag of the new China. You know who makes the proposal that Mao accepts? That uh, uh, Zhang, Zhang, the beautiful young actors. Not, not Gong Li, who is a slave. Sorry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you see the film, The Birth of the Republic? She makes the proposal. She makes. And the most beautiful moment of this retroactive rereading. I loved it. Mao, after <coughs> communists take over Beijing, Mao walks along Beijing and sees a traffic, a tobacco cigarette store, and says to his guard, let's go there, I, lack, I don't have any more cigarettes, I want to buy them. And then the guard tells him, sorry, comrade Mao, but you know, the owner is a capitalist, he escaped, you know. And then Mao said, it's poor. Retroactively, Deng Xiaoping, 30, 40 years later, 50, Mao says, oh my God, are you telling me that, that I cannot even buy my cigarettes now? Sooner or later, even if it takes 40 years, we will have to bring capitalists back, you know? It's naive, but I love it, you know? Now, you totally use the bus to, to deliver to deliver a message. And I love Comrade Stalin when he was at his high point, for example, when in 26, 27, Nadezhda Krupskaya, Lenin's wife, for a brief moment, sided with the left-wing opposition against Stalin. <coughs> and it's well known that Stalin told her, you should think what you are doing. If you'll be going on like this, we will have to discover another video of Lenin. <laughs> <laughs> I like this. Okay, whatever. Uh, uh, uh. Sorry, but let me go on so that my God, I really talk. Okay, I will give you one bribe, nonetheless. 
if you think that I talk too much, I promise through Julia or whoever is here. Is Julia the only boss here? Boss, is there anyone here who has your emails? No, because we all have we all have a chance. I know, but fuck you, I don't want to <laughs> not literally it's a metaphor. <laughs> but 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 I don't you know what I mean? I don't have them. But if you are, I am ready to give you the text themselves, new unpublished texts. Because why should you suffer all the consequences from my private confusion? <laughs> but you mentioned, do you know in that film, you know which film I do like? It's really great. Of the same guy, I don't know how to pronounce it, Still Life. Still Life, it's a really great film, I guess. And he is masterful in how he, so I would describe, walks on the edge. But nonetheless, to conclude that debate, so we are not so far. No, I... Uh, I precisely think that what I hate about Marxists is people. But let me tell you something horrible. What do people want? I think if there is a lesson, sad lesson, from this last reawakening from Tahrir, Arab Spring, Turkey, here, there, is that you practically never can get the majority, real majority. And here, a pessimist, the most you can get is a uh, sympathetic neutrality, I claim. Uh, that was the tragedy of Turkey, of uh, Egypt and so on. Okay, you can have one million people on Tahrir Square, but so what? These are mostly middle class in, uh, intellectual feminists, then the silent majority speaks, you get what you get. I'm even more pessimist here. I think that, point that I often repeated, I think that, uh, I think that, uh, People uh, don't really, I at least, if you are an everyday guy, do you really want to decide? By decide, I mean decide in the sense that there are elections and it's really open. I would have felt terribly unsafe. I want, and I think this is how our democracy works, and I'm not even ironically critical here. It's that uh, we want the appearance of free decision. But we want to be clearly told what to choose. I think it effectively works like that. The moments when you really have to decide, when officially we should have said, oh, democracy finally really functions, their experience is the crisis of democracy. The crisis of democracy means that democracy really works. Okay, but, uh, 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 no, I mean, just to conclude, I'm sorry, uh, that, uh, I mean, there is a certain type of uh, British so-called radical left that we are in more or less open warfare already for 20, 30 years, I mean there. For example, Tariq Ali, he started with this message that uh, we Slovenes, our egotism is guilty. Because of our egotism, we left Yugoslavia, we're responsible for it. Once I told him, but are you aware that what you are doing is a pretty stupid kind of racism? You characterize, uh, I told him, what about if I were to start to talk about Pakistani corrupted gay stupidity or whatever? You know what I mean? Like, one should be, and especially another irony. Slovene egotism, absolutely. We Slovenes are a pretty disgusting nation. I have no problem with that. But is he trying to tell me that others were not egotists or what? 
in Yugoslav war. They were all, most, even the greatest victims, Bosnians. You know, remember, the first year was the war more between Serbia and Croatia. And Bosnians didn't want to join Croatia. They thought that let the two big ones kill each other and then we will step in. Ah, unfortunately, they paid the price later and so on and so on. So no, I think that, uh, 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 I think that, uh, like, there are still, or, for example, I remember with, who is your, the other Greek, the Trotskyite philosopher, uh, Kalinikos. Once I just mentioned that many of working classes now go into this anti-immigrant racism and so on, and he exploded, no, this is bourgeois propaganda, workers are always racist, progressive, sorry, anti-racist. I mean, where does he be? I mean, I think it's simply not true. No, I'm not saying that it's simply the opposite. I'm just saying that, my God, I look at the data in France. The main vote for Front, Front National, especially Le Pen version, is the closest you come now to a workers' party in France. Again, I, as you would have put it, I exaggerate it, simplify it. I know. But again, I just like to, to complicate things. You Tomorrow know? I'm going to give you a copy of my thesis. Which is what? Zizek is an idiot. You cannot imagine. No, you're actually in it. But it, it's, um, it's... Where? In a footnote. Such trash is not even worth mentioning. <laughs> it's called Journalist the Agency in the Subjective Term in British Foreign Correspondent Discourse. Perfect. Thanks. Because you know what? You know, but I hope you at least stole from me. You know how I like to speak. Let's say somebody tells me a new idea. I steal it from him. No, I'm not doing it really, but I dream about doing it. Then you steal the idea, but you add a footnote. When this book was already written, I discovered that a friend of mine also came to a similar idea. You know. so then you are clean, you know. Okay, whatever. Perfect. No, but you see, just the last point. You remember that scandal a year ago, when was it, with, with Noam Chomsky, you know? That was the same. It was so unfair. He started an extremely brutal attack. And then here, at some public talk, somebody asked me... That was me. You were, you were the one. But I just reacted to what said. I didn't know anything. And then the media... The media report, media, reported on this as Zizek answers or whatever. But something must have happened because then he attacked me even more brutally. Then I wrote a much more moderate answer to him, reasonable, and then he stopped. It's very interesting. He, did you see, he did give another interview where the guy who was interviewing him mentioned to me all the time, trying to get his position on me, and he never mentioned my name. So I don't know what happened. Did somebody convince him to stop it or what? Do you know the back? No, I mean, so, Comrade Zizek, there's a This is meant ironically, I'm a traitor for you. Okay, go on. <laughs> I studied with those guys, the analytic thinkers, right? And I, I was a friend with a friend of Chomsky's. There just seems to be a basic point here that isn't coming through and this to, to just jump at that the comrade there 
with this idea of the monolithic and all. Yes, that's right. But there's a very basic point, and yeah. it gets to the distinction between the methodological commitments of Chomsky on the one hand and the method, the, the operating procedure of what Zizek is doing yeah. on the other. Zizek, you're operating in two, from, with respect to Chomsky, you're operating in a, at a different level. It seems to me you're looking, you're looking at the, may I be specific? Yeah. You're looking at the, the sort of, the subjective position within a symbolic order. Yeah. Right. Now, Chomsky is not interested in that, right? Chomsky is interested in a systematic comparative analysis of, of, of the relationship between uh, various determinate, real, actual structures of power institutions and looking at the logic that, that unfolds between that and the media. Now, I'm thinking, of course, of manufacturing consent. It is an excruciatingly detailed comparative analysis that attempts to determine a systematic direction in the media, but through painstaking systematic analysis. That's one thing. Yes. Now, and I appreciate that. Yeah. All I'm saying is that... To but you don't do that. So I, mean, I mean, with respect. No, but you of don't course do I don't, and I don't yeah. intend to do that. Right. What I'm saying is just two things. First... That's an important difference. Yeah, way. yeah, but why didn't Chomsky say that? Be he was... He's older. <laughs> 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 but, but, but now but, I will but, prove to you that I'm a good But there's a very important point that follows Absolutely, just as a matter of the logic of the position. Yes, but okay. What is the connection? What is the relation between you as a theorist and these actual structures of power? And in other words, the empirical at the empirical level. What is the relationship between okay. your no, theory and your theoretical your position? I got your point. And okay. and I will answer it two levels. First, yeah. listen. I not only admire that aspect of Chomsky, I can tell you a story, I don't know how old are you, but the Very first sad. book I read by Chomsky is maybe you are still just an object of desire where your father was looking <laughs> at your mother or whatever. Do you know his early book, uh, uh, Backroom Boys, or what? Isn't it something like this? Ah, you see, you even don't know it. It's a great tragic legend of the left. He published with Fontana, or some publisher, a mass pocket book, I think, Backroom Boys, about how all this bureaucratic background, anonymous guide to make decisions, and uh, Fontana, I think it was Fontana or another mass publisher, Pocket Book American, they were so embarrassed and under political pressure that just to prevent him publishing books with them, they abolished, cancelled, the entire book publisher, they claim commercially it doesn't work, so not just his books, you get it. The entire uh, uh, publishing subdivision was cancelled, just to prevent him. I admire that. What I will say is just this, that you say, I just, first point, I wouldn't be as trustful as you towards this, facts, facts, facts. You know, these facts are not always as perfect as you claim. For example, again, my own example, he sometimes is tempted by this anti-establishment view and when somebody is criticized by the United States, for example, the example I gave, 
I remember reading some of his stuff about post-Yugoslav war, Serbia, and so on, where he basically misinterprets it, claiming that, you know, behind the dissolution of Yugoslavia was Western interest to annoy, blah, blah. Sorry. At that point, I remember James Baker was the foreign minister, and he openly, it was coordinated when Yugoslav army attacked, made, this wasn't a real war, made small intervention in Slovenia. Baker publicly supported it. They did it with Baker's green light. The previous evening, Baker visited Belgrade and said, United States supports a limited military intervention of Yugoslav army to secure the, the territorial unity of Yugoslavia. So all this story, you know that, all this story about how the West contrived to whatever to destroy Yugoslavia, no, till at least till 92, 93, the West was in its great majority for Yugoslavia. And there are so many mysteries there. For example, I will give you a source who is definitely... No, what I'm saying is this that... This isn't a theoretical point. It, I know, but it's precisely when you emphasize how Jones is doing that. factual, he's quite often insufficient at that mm -hmm. level. I'll give you another example. That's I read what he says about October Revolution. He basically buys uh, the standard liberal version. This was just a coup d'etat. Sorry, I know horrors of Stalinism and so on, but it was a coup d'etat, it was. By whom? Lenin was alone. When Lenin in April announced we Bolsheviks have a chance of take power, Nadezhda Krupskaya wrote to Bukhari, Vladimir Ilyich is getting crazy, maybe we will have to hospitalize him. And uh, the truth is that then from below workers, there was a pressure to do something. People were there. I mean, uh, uh, and here, and not to mention Kampuchea, the Khmer Rouge, and so on, all that. So his facts are not always as, although I often admire what he does. For example, what he did in Nicaragua, that was nice, and so on. I also admire how he was critical when one needs to be critical. You remember how he protested to Chavez against some arrests and so on. So all my respect for him. The second thing I would say is that to do the right factual analysis, you should also treat fantasies, dreams, and so on as part of reality. I think that to understand what is going on, facts are not enough. And here I sometimes find it... Well, but he does have a notion of fantasy, right? And it's almost, it's almost, it's almost Marxian, in a sense. He, he, in, in, in it the wasn't. Book, it was, I can tell you what is really Precisely in the following sense. Yeah. Um, it, it almost follows the logic of, of commodity fetishism. That's wonderful if he has this. And I'm thinking of his concept that he, that he arrives at through an analysis yes. of, of of the specific situation between the media and the institutions, yeah. he comes up with a notion that he calls necessary illusions. Mm -hmm. And I believe he's quoting, if I'm not, he, I believe he's quoting with that either the, the theologian Reinhold Niebuhr or was it Walter Lippmann? 
I, I forget. No, no, Lippmann is crucial here. At yeah. the end, because you know probably yeah. better than me that Lippmann, in a positive sense, yeah. opposite to Chomsky, and didn't Lippmann invent the term of manufacturing? Right. Right. And so, so on. So, what he tries to show is that there is a systematic production of what he calls a necessary illusion, such that the illusions, though, this is perhaps where it becomes naive, such that the illusions merely serve the interests that we already know the institutions have. Where it isn't Marxist is in the sense in which it's imminent in the very system of the, of, of the, of the mode of production itself. Right? No, you know what? Okay, can I ask you a simple question? For me, the crucial point is this. The superficial impression I get from reading him is nonetheless that those in power are simply cynics, know they are doing naively. Yeah. No, I think they are naive. Yeah. They, it, it's not that they produce illusions, but they know what is the truth. <coughs> no, they don't know. And, and those who want to be realist cynics are the worst. For me, a big example is uh, Henry Kissinger. I don't think there was, he is supposed to be the ultimate brutal realistic politician. No illusions and so on. He changed, no, is this a joke or? No, no, it's serious. Oh my god, so he is now on the enemy list. <laughs> Sorry to know, it's Warren Buffett thinks the poor should stop blaming inequality on the rich. Well, in a way, I agree with it. You know in what sense? We shouldn't blame them, we should just cut their throats. You know? <laughs> because blaming means you play this game, oh, how could you do this, what, and then the rich will... Although, do you know who is the good guy here? His son. You know that, I quote him, Warren Buffett's son did a friendly but nice criticism of his father, claiming how, okay, he means doing well, but he's just reproducing and so on. Uh, 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 the poverty and so on. So back to that point. Uh, I think that Kissinger, yes, look, he got everything wrong. He made so many mistakes, but not mistakes in some progressive sense. Factual mistakes, mistakes in the sense of uh, uh, of the interest of the United States and so on. So again, I agree with you. This would have been the crucial point. This necessary illusion. But this is again. The, the, the <coughs> to understand Marxism is really Marxist notion of ideology. Again, is to be aware how cynical distance, when you say, fuck it, just illusions and so on, what matters is power, money, blah, blah. This is, in, this is sometimes the greatest naivety. Because, you know, illusions move the world. People are ready to die for illusions. It's, uh, it's, uh, you know what is for me, for example, the tragic example of this limit of factual analysis? Uh, how is he called, I'm sorry if I repeat the story, there is a historian in Israel, revisionist, who already some 10 years ago, is it Benny something or what, I don't know, who wrote a revisionist history demonstrating that uh, Israelis in 48 war did their own ethnic cleansing, killing some entire Palestinian villages, blah, blah, blah. And all the progressives started to jump, you know. Oh, oh, now we know the truth. But then they got a shock. Because this guy said, yes, but I'm sorry, we should have done it even more. <laughs> His thesis is that the mistake of Israel was that 
when they gained momentum either in 49 or in, even in 67, they claimed that if Israelis were to throw all the Palestinians across into Jordan, then there would have been a little bit hot blood then, but now it, it would have been peace. So you know what I mean? Uh, 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 like uh, Chomsky, I think, lives a little bit too much in this illusion of you have to tell to the people the whole truth. No, this is not enough. You have to ruin their illusions also. Sorry. Yes? I have one follow-up question on that. Um, a lot of my work stems from Chomsky's theory of linguistics, and it seems that he occupies a really different theoretical perspective than you, uh, yeah. in some respects, in that this kind of facticity that you can find in the world is found in the universal generative structure of grammar. Yeah. And I have problems with this notion, but it is very much a Kantian, as it puts it, ideal, or sometimes Cartesian. And I wonder, in your new book, you criticize Hawking for his logical positivism as a very crude kind of empiricism. But not, not his physics, although I have my... No, yeah, I thought that was very interesting. We didn't want physics where he, they told me, and I feel sad for this, yeah. that now, theoretically... Yeah, no, I, I thought it was very interesting. And this is kind of what I'm wondering. Could you try to link your approach to subjective, if you want, to the question of facticity in something like science. I think no, that was okay, kind of... I mean, I mean, okay, first what I will tell you is that I think that I'm not totally opposed here to, to, uh, to Chomsky because whatever he is in his linguistics, and when I was young, I followed it closely. I kept oh, those. They first appeared as small books. Do you have an article on that? Stuff, I'd love to read the, that. Uh, early ones, yes. That uh, what I admired in him is that he precisely is not the primitive empiricist. Eh? Mm -hmm. He's very much into speculation. It's up, and even his Cartesianism, in a way, in a way, I like it. I appreciate it. <coughs> so uh, the uh, uh, the problem, even you know, there was a big debate. I think they now even published it, some 2,200 pages of debate between Foucault and Chomsky. Mm -hmm. And although, in principle, I would be on uh, Foucault's side, but I think Foucault is a little bit too smart. Self-satisfied, you know, in simply Foucault is simply repeating this standard European boring pseudo-Marxist stuff. Ha ha! No, you're naturalizing. It's really all uh, uh, historically mediated, and so on and so on. I mean, uh, Chomsky is, in a way, in his theory that linguistic structure has to be in some way innate. How do you call it? No, he is. Right, it's not simply directly culture, because to, to give a very primitive example, if you raise an ape like a human, up to a certain point, I think till one year or what, it will progress even faster. But then, when you go come to language, it will not. My, my, so here I, I don't have, although I'm not qualified enough to judge, all I know is that at least in Europe, what is now developing is neither the classical structural linguistics nor... It's almost Chomsky. analogous to Lacan's notion that the structure of the unconscious is similar or analogous to a language. I've yeah, often thought even parallel, here with I mean. Lacan, you know, now I will be critical so that you will not think that I'm dogmatic. I will be critical even against Lacan himself. Lacan likes to make these sweeping abstract radical statements. But uh, how do Americans say, where is the beef? The beef in this case how far does it work in real detailed analysis? You know, because the, what's so problematic is that when 
what Lacan does after he speaks, you know, you can see like a royal announcement with trumpets, uh, blah, 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 unconscious structure, like language and so on. It's almost always even the same couple of examples. Usually it's Signorelli for, from psychoanalysis of everyday life and so on. A lot more of work is needed there. Although Lacan is on top something there. It's this counterintuitive approach of signifier. For example, recently I read, oh, uh, oh, uh, no, but my enemy here is not so, you know who is my enemy, to conclude my point. <laughs> to conclude, my enemy are idiots like Steven Pinker, and I was so glad to discover that he even hates me. I don't know him, but you know when some idiot attacked me when I said the obvious truth, that I hate students and that most people are idiots, you know. But these are for me like, you know, like the beginning of American uh, uh, the Declaration of Independence. There are some truths evident. So, okay, I said, and he said, oh, this must be a naughty guy, arrogant, somebody told. But, uh, uh, you know where I have a problem? Here, Lacan is on top something. That, uh, uh, and some intelligent, really bright uh, cognitivists, I'm not dismissive of brain sciences, cognitivism as such, get into it. That, again, what characterizes human language in comparison with all those stupid beasts who can signal, fuck you, if you go so much here, left, uh, three steps left or whatever, you will discover roses with a lot of honey, whatever. Yes, they can transmit, communi communicate in the sense of transmitting a message in a wonderful way. Uh, but Lacan's point is that human language is a broken language consistently. It's structured around an impossibility of what you cannot say. So this, it's not that we have a perfect linguistic structure and then, as Habermas thinks, because of uh, social repression, whatever, something gets oppressed, language is broken. No, it's constitutively broken. We speak because we cannot say everything. You know, speech, human speech, and uh, now you will think I'm dreaming. Ah, 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 I'm dreaming in a scientific way. I find not only Daniel Dennett, who is more intelligent, I think, but quite many others uh, who, who got into this. That it's much more paradoxical if you try to isolate the specificity of human language with regard to animal science. That it's absolutely not you should not focus simply on more, like, you know, oh, we humans do more. No, we humans can do more because, precisely because we do less. Something, to put it in Lacanian terms, some signifier is prohibited, is the structure of oppression, and here creativity comes from. And this is what stupid linguists like Steven Pinker don't see. If I may repeat my old point. He, uh, you know, there is so-called enigma of consciousness. You must not like uh, why our mind cannot understand itself. Well, Pinker gives a stupid, simple answer. Because evolutionary, it was not created for that. Language was created for communication in work process, for seduction, cooperation, and for that is perfect. He even gives this unfortunate example. 
the rabbits also don't understand higher mathematics in infinitesimal account because evolutionary they don't need it. But isn't there something obviously wrong in this answer? Yes, but rabbits also don't dwell upon infinitesimal account. It's simply outside. Why, why do we humans think all the time about impossible problems? Trying to, you know, and it's much more paradoxical. I found this in intelligent uh, 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 brain scientists and uh, cognitivists that it's precisely by, how should you put it, we, if you just stick to the right rational questions, you get nowhere. You ask a crazy question which cannot be resolved and that by trying to elaborate it as a byproduct there is progress. And it's interesting to read even inventions in this way. How contrary to vulgar Marxism, machinery did not develop originally for industry and so on, and then we use it for toys. No, the golden era of machinery was, as we all know, the court of Louis XIV, where they have immense puppets doing whatever, and then, so it was originally a pure surplus, a toy. Then, some idiot British came and said, oh, why don't we build, a, I don't know, some spinning wheel or whatever out of this. It, it, it's a much more refined, much more paradoxical, you know. So again, I am not opposing these positivists for their positivism, for their too rational approach. I don't think there is at any point some necessity of some higher entity. I'm just saying the way things progress, it's not we are stupid animals and then uh, I don't know who God or whatever miracles intervene. It's a failure. Something goes terribly wrong. And then, even Chomsky is a nice example here. You must know this. I read somewhere that the way he developed his uh, grammar, isn't it that first he was a more, he was very young, traditional linguist, and then he played with this tree structure, tree three drawings of deep structure as a game to pass time with his colleagues. It was actually after he read Cantor and I, I was actually exposed to the mathematics of the that he this started to develop I didn't know this. You mean yeah. Cantor, multiple infinities. Yeah, the idea that semantic novelty emerges through these branching tree structures, but nonetheless it never reaches a point where you can talk about all possible sentences. That was what really exposed him. That and romantic poetry, apparently. But really, did he really refer yeah. to Cantor? Yeah, actually, he refers to it all the time in some of his no, texts. Uh, no, to conclude, really, I'm just very sad about that uh, about that conflict with Chomsky because I don't know what is behind. Because you know, at a certain level, I can understand him dismissing me. But if you read his attack <coughs> on me, admitting that there is, if I may use Lacanian terms, some surplus enjoyment in, in fury. And I, and I, we even, somebody remarked this, that in spite of all these wild conflicts, we end up signing the same stupid, inefficient political protest. <laughs> I'm sorry, so again, we lost the day, but what is life? You know what is the best definition of life? I told it to you, no? Absolutely correct one. I'm sorry if I repeat myself. There is a Polish proverb. Wonderful graffiti well known. Think about it. It's totally true. Life is a disease which always ends in death 
and which is transmitted by sex. The only correct definition of life. So, okay, I talk too much, I know tomorrow. So, okay, we just postpone it. Tomorrow is China and to Heidegger, first part of philosophy. Then, get ready, took some laxatives, whatever, for Thursday. Thursday, we do the big thing, philosophy. Why? Just to annoy her again, because I hope she can come now. She told me maybe she will not. She is not here. Jacqueline Rose. No. Okay, because I will replace Jackie. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Sir.